Welcome, everyone, to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. We are so very happy you're here. I am thrilled to be hosting a conversation with one of my newest best friends in Atlanta, Paige Alexander, who is the CEO of the Carter Center. She has so much richness in her own vocational journey. And of course, the Carter Center does as well. I am very excited about kind of bringing to the surface a conversation about that. And it's very timely for the moment we're in, in our own country. And that's kind of how Paige and I got to be friends in the first place. But before we get into that, let me just first welcome, welcome you, Paige Alexander. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. I am, uh, for, for reasons that are unfortunate, our paths crossed early on, but for reasons that are fortunate, I am very glad to have uh, met you and met the community that you're working with. Thanks so much. You're a huge part of what has been evolving, you know, just in the past year about our interfaith prayer services, but we'll get to that in just a second. I want to start with what arrested me when I was doing just a little bit of research about you. And particularly the announcement of your becoming the CEO of the Carter Center, which just happened in June, right? Is that correct? Right, exactly. Wow, for you to come on board in the middle of a pandemic, that's that's very impressive, the courage uh, of your doing that. But But I loved this sentence. She has been engaged to carry the Carter Center into its next era of building peace, health, hope for the world's poorest. I mean, that, I mean, just repeating it right now brings all this inspirational energy to my heart. <laughs> and then, and then you layer onto that that the Carter Center's mission is to alleviate suffering and also to advance human rights globally. I just love both of those things. So I want you to unpack that a little bit. Sure. And then the second question, which you can weave into the answer of the first question is there is, it's really clear to me from reading everything I've read about you that your life has destined you to be the CEO of the Carter Center with this kind of inspiring mission. So I want you to unpack the mission a little bit and this global vision, and then also to talk about what in your life has prepared you for this. Thanks. Well, I'd, you've actually summed it up quite well in that I do feel like this is sort of the pinnacle of my professional and my personal life. You know, when, um, so we were living in Amsterdam, uh, our, my husband, my whole family have three kids. The two older ones were grown, they were at college, and our younger son said he really wanted to move overseas to play soccer. It was the end of the last administration, or the, previous, the Obama administration, and so my job was going to be ending. And my husband and I had spent 25 years in Washington, and we were ready for a change. So we decided to follow our son, at that time 13, to Amsterdam, where he was going to play soccer. And we had this wonderful experience that we thought would be a year. And then we said, well, let's, you know, we kept extending. So it was three years. And from my perspective, 
I had worked in government for 15 years. I'd worked in the nonprofit sector for nine years. I wanted to get back to doing something on the ground. And so to be in Europe and to be working with African farmers uh, on their supply chain and helping them link farmers to markets to teach them to sell what they could, you know, to sell what they were growing, not just selling what they were growing, but to grow what they could sell. So for me, it was really getting back to the grassroots work, but it was Africa and that was new to me. And I was doing it to keep out of the conflict of interest of everything I had done in government. So it was a wonderful three years, but when the Carter Center approached me, you know, it was Atlanta and I'm from Atlanta. My entire family lives here. I'm one of those Alexanders, I'm the youngest. It was uh, people were like, I didn't know Ken David and Michael had a sister or Mazadi Lane had a daughter. I seem to remember that. So for me, it really was a return to home, a place that I had been calling home for quite some time, although I hadn't lived here. So when I accepted the job, it was not in the middle of a global pandemic. And uh, during the interview process, I was coming back through and interviewing with the board and talking to President Carter. And you know, he set this organization up 30 years ago with the sole purpose, with the North Star of global health and human rights. Peace. So, you know, the, our mission statement is waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. And the nice thing about that is it's sort of all-encompassing, and it's also a very clear mission. So we haven't jumped off to do other, other things. It's all been an organic growth on what President and Mrs. Carter saw growing up in Plains. They saw what happened to rural farmers who weren't getting the care they needed or who didn't have access to what they needed. And so, as he always says, you know, we work on neglected tropical diseases. They're not super sexy, guinea worm, trachoma, river blindness, onchocoriasis, schistosomiasis, saying those mainly because I actually can say them now and I know what they mean, so I feel really smart about it. But he, you know, they're, they're no neglected diseases, they're neglected people. And so he was really getting to the people at the end of the road, the last mile. And because it's President and Mrs. Carter and what they've built up, the donor support we have and the support of you know, the little old lady in Ottumwa, Iowa, who sees a picture of guinea worm and says, that's horrible. I remember when, and you, know, they, they, you can feel it. You can feel it. It's palpable about the people that are supporting what the Carter Center has done. At the same time, I come from a democracy rights and governance background. So for me, the peace part of it, conflict resolution, free and fair elections, rule of law, transparency, access to justice, uh, especially for vulnerable, the vulnerable poor and women, these are all things that really speak to me. So to have been able to apply for a job that actually brought these together was truly you know, my 25 years of global development work all coming together under the passion that I have for peace and conflict resolution. It's just perfect. And because I can now say all these neglected tropical diseases and know what they mean, it still gives me a learning experience at this point in my career. So that, you know, so when I accepted the job and came in for the interviews and had these conversations, it, you know, it was wonderful to sit down with President Carter and really be able to have a discussion with him about why he did this and what led to it and where his passion is. If you've read any of his 36 books, you can pull a little bit of that out. If you talk to him, you know, even at 96, 
he's still just very passionate about these things. And for me, that's, that's important. I want to show up at work every day and be passionate about what I do. That is so inspiring to me, Paige. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I, I'm drawn to people who have a kind of a vision for global citizenship mm -hmm. because of my theological background of making sure that we understand we're all interconnected and the world, you know, it, it's too small a place for us to do our own thing and not be aware that that impacts so many other people. And what little international travel I've done, um, particularly in South Africa, uh, there's, well, also a little bit in Syria, um, there's the saying that when America sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. And, you know, that just is, that puts us in our place of how impactful our living is and so few of our citizens have the kind of the awareness that I think we ought to have. And so I'm just having a, I've been around President Carter some and just so impressed. And I love his storytelling, um, you know, and, and that about his childhood and how he got to be what he is, not only in his presidency, but this amazing post-presidency. Yeah. Nevertheless, my fantasy is that when you and he, he sat down that you all had so much fun because you were holding your own with him as a global citizen yourself. You know, I respect for elders. Obviously, I'm from Atlanta. I respect my parents. My grandparents were around for most of my life. You know, so it was hard when you walk in to have a conversation with a former president, especially you know someone who has done so much in his presidency and really in his post-presidency as well. I was nervous, but you walk in and his house in Plains, Georgia, you could be at any grandparents' house anywhere. It was, you know, a small front entryway where we sat down and just had a very sort of, you know, interesting conversation. And, you know, from, we talked, we went from Ireland to Syria, we talked about Africa, we talked about Judaism and Christianity. It was, I just, yeah. So it was like, and then I had, I had um, pimento cheese sandwiches apple slices and tomato soup for lunch. So it really, you just felt, I was sitting in their kitchen and it was just a, a wonderful experience. So, yes. What an interesting uh, kind of, I don't know, window in about fermented cheese sandwiches and tomato soup and apple slices. A, and, and what a com complex person, a peanut yeah. farmer, a Navy officer and the president of the United States, and then to have the most distinguished post-presidency life of anybody in American history. Yeah, it's yeah. just something. And such a strong marriage between the two of them because I yeah. asked about how this started and it was almost like an epiphany one morning they woke up and just said, this is what we've seen. This is what we grew up with and the presidency, this is what we were able to see. This is what we need to dedicate ourselves to. So really, it, you know, it was a, they're about to celebrate their 75th year of marriage and you know, they are as, you know, as much a team as, as my parents or anyone else I've seen that I sort of put on that pedestal. And that's really lovely. Yeah. So let's go back to your journey. So um, from what I picked up, you've had your sleeves rolled up with your hands involved in everything from the Balkans to African nations to the Middle East, I think. Right. So, I mean, 
build that in a little bit in terms of other global kind of places you've been engaged. And what I want to drive toward is what have been your learnings, your deepest learnings? What, what do you know about page, how the world kind of works from your dipping in deeply in those different places? Sure. Well, I, you know, I'll say that I, I don't think I was a global citizen uh, to begin with. My parents were very good about making sure we were, we took trips and we understood the rest of the world. And I had a wonderful <clears throat> schooling. I went to Pace Academy back in the 80s and uh, I went to Tulane and um, also in the 80s. And the concept of a global citizen wasn't quite as well formed there. But I actually met my now husband, uh, my boyfriend at the time was on a political campaign and he was working on his PhD and he was studying Czechoslovakia because it was still Czechoslovakia. So I actually, the target of opportunity in my life I took was to follow him to Prague. And so we moved to Prague in uh, 1990 and we spent two years there. So that actually opened my eyes to what a global citizen was and to watch a country going through the changes in a region because I worked in Czechoslovakia, I worked in Romania, Poland, Hungary, I did a lot in Central and Eastern Europe. As an American to your point of when you sneeze the rest of the world gets a cold, I was walking into essentially the former Soviet bloc when they were still really respectful of the US and so when you came there it's even as a 22 year old, I was bringing knowledge that they didn't necessarily think they had. And so it was a very empowering feeling, but it was also great to work with these nonprofit organizations because they were just starting. So that really was my life journey was having that experience. And from that, I came back uh, and wanted to do something. I ended up in academia working uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard on a on doing public administration because they were running public administration programs, but they didn't understand culturally how a university in one of these countries really, how do they transform? How do you move from a Marxist-Leninist society to something else? And so I felt like I offered a little bit of information and in, in bridging that gap. Uh, and then I went into government because I thought public service, you know, when you're asked to serve, it's a wonderful thing. And so I went into government and I was able to do policy. And again, all of this was Central and Eastern Europe. And so that was really my focus for the majority of the beginning of my career. And with a natural organic growth, because I then worked for an NGO for nine years, we started doing work in, uh, in the Middle East because there was a lot of transformation happening in the Middle East. And there was an opportunity for us to move people over uh, uh, to, to have the experiences of the opening of the, of the curtain, the iron curtain. Some of that was starting to happen in the Middle East. So that ended up being a natural sort of progression for me. And so when I went back into government in 2011 or 2010, working on Central and Eastern Europe, I also started working in the Middle East. And so that was Arab Spring, that was an exciting time. And so having been able to cover those parts of the world have been fascinating for me. Um, and, then, uh, and then to be able to do Africa. Uh, for me, it's been really an interesting opportunity both in Amsterdam to link these farmers to markets uh, working in Rwanda and Ethiopia and Mali 
And then now being here and having the ability to work with the farmers' families, uh, to work with the people, as I said, at the end of the road. So it really was a very natural progression for me. So, so having had that cross-section of Central and Eastern Europe where people were just coming into understanding you know, what the Western world looked like and the Middle East where the Western world really wasn't the place that you wanted to sneeze on you, to your, to your point, it was, you know, they had their, a very specific culture, not that Central and Eastern Europe didn't, but the Middle East, it was very different. And so my move over to do work in Africa was a bit of an aha moment for me because I thought I've spent the rest of my world, the rest of my professional life in a very privileged part of the world where I was able to see people who actually did not have a lot of trouble feeding themselves, feeding their families. The government either took care of them to, to you know, sometimes to their demise, a little bit uh, more attention than they wanted, but they were taken care of. And then to suddenly move over to be working on Africa, where you really saw what a difference small interventions can make in the education that we were able to work with community development. So these were, this was actually, as President Carter had, likes to say, and I just saw an interview he did, uh, or that Melinda Gates did with David Letterman, where she says the best advice she ever got was from President Carter, who said, these things have to be locally owned. Like we can't jet in. My, my older daughters always talked about white saviorism, and it is wonderful that we can offer this assistance, but at the end of the day, the, the people we work with can do this on their own if they're given that information, if they're given the ability. And so for us, for example, in Ethiopia, uh, Chad, South Sudan, the places that were fighting guinea worm, as soon as you can actually work with a community and tell them how to collect water in a safer way, different than they've done for generations and generations, you have to come in as a trusted person into that community and explain, you can rid yourself of guinea worm. I mean, when we started this in 1986, there were 3.6 million cases of guinea worm in the world in 21 countries. We're down to 54 cases now in, in eight countries. It is, it is, this will be the first disease that has been eradicated since smallpox. And it's the only disease that we will eradicate without medical intervention. It literally is collecting water in a safer way. And, it, you know, and so to me, that's the type of behavior change that I think nonprofit organizations and especially the Carter Center is so good at because we work with the communities. Um, and we had the same thing with Ebola in Liberia. We were able to go in and talk to community elders and leaders, religious leaders, and explain to them what Ebola was in a way that it changed how they did their burial rituals, but it also protected people. So it's having that community engagement and having the trust of the community. And that's what the Carter Center has been doing. So for me, that's the exact place I want to be in. That's the place I'm excited about. How fulfilling to be a part of the factor that got inserted, that created so much change. That is thrilling. And that's the hope that we all need to have. There, there are no intractable problems that can't be solved through some kind of wise, smart intervention. Um, oh, that's that's thrilling. But and it's what people, you know, 
it's what people worldwide see. It's why we love our teachers because the teachers can see in the faces of their students, the difference that they're making. The doctors, the nurses, the medical professions, the professionals can see in the faces of people that they're helping. And this is just more of that. It's just with a slightly less intervention because it's scalable. Once you've helped, once you've worked with these people, they are able to then go and work within their own structures. And it just multiplies. And so it's that type of excitement that, that makes me love the work we do. It's very, very exciting. I, I, I am gonna shift a little bit because I have been a bit of a student of, of Jimmy Carter, of President Carter and of the Carter Center. And what I have associated with the Carter Center is exactly the kinds of stories that you've been telling. Um, I mean, to hear them told from your perspective on a deeper, richer level, very, very inspiring. Having said that, I was really, I must say, surprised when St. Luke's Episcopal Church was approached in October and uh, to host a series of public mourning prayer services. And they dropped the name of the Carter Center. And they said the Carter Center and, and they mentioned two other partners, which we can mention in just a second, have deemed that Atlanta is a hot spot until we get through the senatorial races. And we would like for you to kind of be a citywide host for this morning process. And I thought, I thought to myself, the Carter Center is getting involved in that. So Paige, could you talk a little bit about how it all, it, in, in my mind, it all is of a piece, but how, what can you tell us about the, how the Carter Center got involved in this issue of kind of bridging divides and, and uh, addressing um, polarization and wanting to be an interrupter of violence. Yeah. Well, so we have a long history of having worked and we've uh, monitored 112 elections in wow. 40 different countries across wow. the world. So we have set the international election standards for free and fair and transparent elections. We've been part of this process. Now there are lots of groups involved in it, which is wonderful. But when I came in the first week in June, and you know, keep in mind, I, I got off the plane, you know, flying in from Amsterdam, met at the plane by the CDC asking me if I had been to Iran or China recently, as if I was not walking into the viral stew of COVID in Georgia. And I thought, I can't believe those are still your talking points, but they were doing their job. And then my brother Kent picked me up and we drove down Peachtree and I saw the aftermath of the protests. It was the weekend after George Floyd. So I saw what had happened on Peachtree and I get to my parents' house and there's a split screen with uh, you know, Lafayette Park, a place I had lived for 25 years working on global development in Washington, DC to see Lafayette Park being, you know, uh, uh, being tear gassed for a photo op that was happening from the White House at the time. And I looked at that and I thought, what have I just moved back into? And then my first meeting with staff, which was non-3D, it was very much like we have now, they were upset 
and they felt that we needed to take a stand. And so actually very quickly that, you know, I, I started June 15th, June 16th, we issued a statement about the racial injustice issues. And it was a staff led moment where they wanted to have a voice. And for me coming in, knowing that I was leading an international development organization, but this was happening in our backyard. I was seeing this firsthand and I thought we can't be quiet. We wouldn't be quiet if this was Guyana or Liberia. How can we stand by? And so with President Carter's support and Jason Carter, who's the chair of our board, you know, we decided to dive in. And so part of what we wanted to do was to look at you know, using our conflict resolution program lens and working with Herrera Balian, who has been our the director of that program for quite some time. You know, he's seen this across the world. And so he looked at it through his lens and David Carroll and Avery Davis Roberts are our democracy program folks, experts in elections, looked at it through their lens and came up with a program that I think really was going to address some of what we were seeing that we would do overseas. So, you know, our, our work with you all, with bridging divides, with cure violence, we put a filter, a data analytic filter over where we were worried about violence. And for us, it was North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And so we wanted to look at how do you build an interfaith community? You know, my husband has done a lot of work with, uh, with um, Imam Majid and Rabbi Saperstein and Pastor uh, Bob Roberts. And so I knew from his interfaith sort of conversation. So we actually, it's been great that, that we've connected with different communities so we could have this message. And it's not a partisan message. And for us, that was the most important thing. You know, we're Jimmy Carter, it's Georgia. We look to be all blue, but we are a nonpartisan organization and we have a, a, you know, a staff that feels that way and we have a board that feels that way. And so coming in and just addressing how do you get free, fair and transparent elections? And so I've worked with the Secretary of State's staff and they have been wonderful. And we've put together, they put on, put together a bipartisan, nonpartisan task force that is continuing. And we will continue with agenda items to make sure that that people, people's votes can be heard and that people believe in this process. So yes, the Carter Center jumped in with both feet. We'll continue some elements of domestic work, but at the end of the day, there are groups like Cure Violence and Bridging Divides that, that do this. And so we want to help elevate that. We, we are not first among equals in, you know, in this information space, but we want to be part of that. So. Uh, that, that's how we ended up getting involved. So thank you for that. Very, very helpful. Let's just identify those two other organizations. Cure Violence Global is a powerful organization that you all introduced us into, um, along with the Morning Into Unity movement people who are in Seattle. But this is a group that, not unlike the Carter Center, studies the escalation of violence in countries, particularly where there's authoritarianism involved, and how you can do certain things that have been proven to be effective in other countries. And they look, they look at violence as an infection, and that uh, when violence erupts, it actually is an infectious thing that spreads. And the other organization that you mentioned, Bridging Divides Initiatives, is a Princeton organization. And so it's really quite a trifecta when you think about the Carter Center, Princeton University, and Cure Violence Global. And um, 
so it has been very, very inspiring. And this is by way of thanking you. It's been very inspiring to be on those Zoom calls where people from all over the country were talking about uh, the uptick in militias in America. And, you know, I was thinking, I have to, this is a confessional uh, page. I was thinking, oh, I don't see it. I don't think it. And then January 6 happened and the attack on the Capitol. And it was like all of it was there and that you all and Princeton and Cure Violence Global were all saying, hey, this stuff is real and it's happening. So, it, and and I think, I, I thank you, uh, you've invited uh, a couple of us to um, a Zoom meeting that's happening, I think in a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. where you're gonna talk about, kind of give a report about where we are and all that stuff. We don't need to get into that unless you want to uh, foreshadow anything that you're gonna say there. Um, but all of that is to say, can you reflect, Paige, about what happened inside your heart and what happened inside the Carter Center on January 6th and the attack on the Capitol? Yeah, uh, what a tough day for the U.S. I mean, I think for anyone, regardless of political party and affiliation, how you felt when you suddenly saw the Capitol breached by people who don't represent you and you understood their frustration. And I, I, was, I was at work and I had a split screen. So I was running ABC on the side and I was like, oh, you know, the media is doing what the media does. They're filming a group of people. Really, if they pulled the camera back, it wouldn't be that many people. Then they pulled the camera back. I was like, oh, it's actually a lot of people. And then the camera went in close and I thought, are they climbing up the, you know, the, 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 the pilings that had been put on for the inauguration? And I had just been in DC, we had driven up uh, to see my in-laws. And so I had just come back. And so we had driven around the Capitol. So I had seen those structures built and I thought, oh, it's for the inauguration. And then I realized when you saw the people. So for, for me, it was this moment of disbelief. I was at the office and again, I'm at the office by myself. So I actually immediately went home. I wanted to be with my son and my husband and watch it with them and try to process. And I think that was very difficult. It was very difficult for people here. But also what was difficult, since you mentioned cure violence, global and bridging divides and the work that we've been doing. And I would say throughout, the, throughout Georgia, the work that ADL and ACLU and others have been doing, we've been raising the flag that this was a concern. And, but it just goes to show you, the FBI was raising the flag that it was a concern. So you can have these flags raised at many levels, but it doesn't mean there's gonna be action. And so part of it was then the reaction to that the following week for the swearing in or two weeks later for the swearing in and to see, you know, 25,000 troops on the mall when it should have been this joyful celebration for the inaugural and it was, but it's just not the way you want to see your city. So for me, it's how do we get back to normal? And there is some space between overprotection and people feeling like they can't be heard and people feeling like they've got the bully horn and they can be heard all the time. And so that again is the space that the Carter Center sort of tries to occupy so voices can be heard, so these discussions can happen. And this is why we've linked with a number of organizations to try to make sure those conversations continue to happen. We used to have something called Conversations with the Carters uh, here at the Carter Center. And that was part of it, not just to hear President and Mrs. Carter speak, but 
to actually have discussions. And we did it here in Georgia, apparently, before my time uh, with the flag, when the flag was changed. And then there were sort of critical conversations that happened around town with President Carter and Ambassador Andrew Young and John Lewis. And, you know, what does the flag change mean? To make sure people's voices were heard. So we're looking at that space now to see how, how can we continue to have a conversation where family members and neighbors can respectfully disagree and have their positions and have them heard. Um, but, you know, factually make sure that we're getting the truth out there. A crucial, crucial need in America right now to have these conversations because, sadly, I report that just in the last week, I have had pastoral care conversations mm -hmm. with people who were either in my faith community or who have been in a faith community that I've led before, who've reported in that their own families, actually three families, where in one family, brother and sister are no longer speaking to one another, to another family where there was an eruption after the January 6th, where one person was awfully sympathetic with what had happened, and then the rest of the family horrified by that. And then another one where um, a family, family members are having direct contact with people who have revealed that they are QAnon supporters. Ah. So all of that is shocking. And I am saying to myself, Ed Bacon, get over your naivete. <laughs> Watch out what's going on. And then um, recently I had as a guest a historian of religion and of sociology and religion. And she was unpacking how in large religious groups, there has been all of this unfolding and a huge aha for me was a, an above the fold New York Times front page article, maybe, gosh, it was a lengthy article on Sunday morning unpacking how widespread and well-funded um, these, let's say dynamics or these energies were who came together on January 6th. So thank God that you all are thinking about having these conversations because we've got to talk with one another in America. We have got to talk about what's going on. Yeah, I, there's, you know, I think everyone's been naive and I think on all sides, everyone is naive. You know, my, I grew up being, you know, with the, with the adage that you really, you, you can't teach empathy. Like kids have empathy, parents help get them empathy, but it's not something that, you know, that is the most important thing. Cause at the end of the day, you want your children, you want people to be empathetic towards others. And so it's not that I can fully understand people's sympathies towards a, you know, a non-factual argument, but I'm empathetic to the fact that they feel this way. And this is an ongoing concern and they truly believe. And so how do you have that conversation? And I, I don't know if there's a right way or a wrong way. I think what happened on this six sort of set some people over 
and they realize, well, that's not me. That's not what I look like. I, you know, I am unhappy with what happened, but that's not what I look like. And others think it was the exact right thing to do because that's the people's house and they can walk in anytime they want. So it, it's, you know, you have to be empathetic to the fact that people feel that things happened, things are happening that they're out of control of. And so that is part of, you know, one of my brothers is a psychologist. And so I've learned through talking with him over the years, you know, the control aspect is something that everyone wants in their life. And in the middle of a global pandemic, no one is in control of anything. And so you've got sort of a reawakening of racial injustice. You've got a global pandemic going on. You've got political polarization. It is not an easy time for people to exist in this space. And so how do you find that grounding where you can have the conversations and recognize, be empathetic to the fact that people are feeling unsettled and it's real and it is global and it is not just in the U.S.? And so how, you know, how do you approach a conversation in a slightly different way than telling your neighbor or your brother or your sister, you know, you're wrong. Like that's not a place to start, so. So let's put an asterisk over the language you just used. People are feeling unsettled and it is a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that in just a second, but I'm putting an asterisk on it because there is another question that I had, pardon me, welcome to my brain. Um, <laughs> so recently, we heard from our current Department of Homeland Security warning that there are domestic extremists who are still at work planning some kind of attacks in coming weeks. There's a monitoring of online chatter and it went on, the report went on to say that it is keeping the false narrative alive about January 6th. And um, there is a remaining of thousands of troops in DC because until, if we have an impeachment trial, there is concern by Homeland Security that these domestic extremists can come back into Washington. Now I've been looking at my notes here because I wanted to, I took careful notes using the language of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted you as, this is a question about your leadership. I mean, you are Paige, not only a national leader, but you're a global leader. How do you hear that as a leader that domestic extremists are still very active? Well, I would say uh, a couple of things. One, having spent 15 years in government, I know how hard it is to issue a statement like that. So there's a lot behind it that led them to issue that type of public alert. Um, having said that, we've had domestic extremism for you know, my entire adult life. I mean, you just look in Georgia, you look at Eric Rudolph, I mean, Centennial Park. Uh, you know, this is, we have had people like that um, throughout. And in fact, when you look at, at, at the domestic extremism, whether it's guns in schools or whether it's um, the Richard Russell building, uh, Timothy McVeigh, we've had that. 
So this is not entirely new. It is just we are becoming more aware of it now. And they have the ability to go into social media and have platforms that help expand these theories. And so I think that the disinformation campaign that continues around you know, around the politics and around the narrative that is created is of a concern. So I think you know, decisions made by Facebook and Twitter are interesting, but as a supporter of freedom of speech, I do worry about it. I think people's civil liberties cannot be stepped on just because they've got a different message. But the extremist elements need to be brought forward and someone needs to be tracking those. And we continue to track them uh, through a digital threats initiative that we've done this overseas and we're doing this here now. The question is, how do you raise those issues? As I said, you know, we've seen that the FBI had said that it, the Capitol was going to be a place that um, that should be that should be covered, but it wasn't. So how are we at the Carter Center going to get this message out? Uh, and we, again, working with ADL, working with others who have a bully pulpit to speak from, you know, we want to partner to make sure that these messages are carried forward. All of that is really stunning to me. Um, I, I've been in conversations with um, some other people who've been talking about what you were talking about, and that is the instability that we are experiencing globally. Um, we're experiencing it in the country um, but also globally. And one of my conversational partners talked about liminality and being in a liminal space. And she was talking about how we are moving in our country. And she said globally from one story to a new narrative. And then another conversational partner with whom I'm learning so much is characterizing that story we're leaving as a story of the separate self and the story that we're going to is the story of interconnectedness uh Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing and you really do have your fingers on the pulse of so much globally. Can you respond to that? Do, do you have this sense that we are in kind of moving from one kind of arrangement of values to a different one and that we're kind of caught in between right now? Would that, does that have any merit in your thinking? I, well, I mean, it certainly resonates when you start thinking about uh, sort of this place and time that we're in. I think if you talk to people from older generations as well, they'll say, oh, we were here before. We were here during Nixon Watergate. We were, you know, we were here during the Cold War. So I think we've been in these uncomfortable spaces before. Um, how we manage ourselves out of this is really, again, it, it needs to be an empowerment. It needs to be up to us. Um, you know, I listened to a podcast this weekend that, that talked about humans is, have essentially been hacked. I mean, any of our online presence for those who spend a lot of time online, you'll, you, know, you can tell either by advertisements coming up or by phishing techniques that people are reaching out to or, you know, or the mailers that you get that are not real. Uh, 
you know, we have been hacked. And so at some point you have to sort of go back to basics and say, what, what is it that I truly believe? Where's my moral compass? Where are my values? And enough with the noise. But it's harder to do when people are stuck at home, when they're not having conversations with people uh, and having those interactions. And so you fall deeper into this abyss of relying on this as being the place you get your information from. And given that the information is coming from very different sides, you know, what you ascribe to ends up being sort of your full-on belief. And uh, so it's a difficult time. Yeah, I don't know. It's the first time I've lived through something this difficult. So I can't say this is worse than other, you know, other times in our history, but it's certainly more challenging. Um, but you know, I'm an optimist and wherever there are challenges, there are also opportunities. And I think that that's, that's the space that we want to see, whether it's globally, uh, overseas, as we're having these conversations with people. And we as Americans can no longer stand as a bit of a first among equals when we're having some of the same problems. But that's part of the conversation. And that's part of the conversation that needs to be happening. That's so very helpful. Um, this, this line of thinking goes on to say that in moments of transition, chaos, instability, that we really do need people who are in leader roles to provide the stability. Right. Now you've just mentioned that you're an optimist and what little I know of you, I know you as a deeply spiritual person. So can you kind of talk about and you know, go wherever you want on this and protect yourself from any <laughs> disclosure you don't wanna make, but where, where does your faith or where does your spirituality or where do your values what are they saying to you and how are you kind of dwelling in them as a way of moving through this uncertain time? Sure. I, you know, I, I would say my, my spiritual values uh, come from the fabric of my family, uh, both the family I grew up with here in Atlanta and the family I've now created. At the same time, we, we are Jewish and you know, I, I went to the temple here in Temple Sinai and we belong to shoals all over uh, wherever we've lived. So it's spiritual, but my moral value is all people are created equal. And so how do you make sure that you're treating all people equally? Uh, whether it's the, the, the people we work with at the end, you know, at the last mile at the end of the road, whether it's the people in our neighborhood, whether it's you know friends and former friends who who have different opinions, um, you know, that's really my basis, and I think that's President Carter's basis as well. And that's why, having started the Carter Center, it really came back to we just need each other. I mean, we can build a society that is effective if we all work together. And so to your initial point, leadership is an incredible part of that. And that's why we do a lot in the peace sector and a lot in the sector working with elections because free and fair elections, I think democracy, rights, governance, free and fair elections are the base from which to build because if we have seen nothing, we have seen that a lack of leadership can affect us. The trickle down effects are very difficult. And, 
leadership can be done in many different ways. And I don't have to agree with the leadership, but you can tell when the leadership is lacking. And so for us, we believe, and I believe that our democratic process is the right one. Could it be tweaked? Sure. Could we have a different type of electoral reform system here? Sure. But at the end of the day, as long as everyone's voice is heard and the elected officials are going and representing the voice of the people, I think that, you know, that that's the process. It, it will, there's pendulum swings and, and we will self-correct through times. And as I like to say, you know, over this past month, you know, our democracy was bent, but it was not broken. Uh, and for me, that's a really important takeaway from this is that the system works and a new president is in because the people voted for that new president. And that is the system that we have. And that is what we will go for. So. My, so, okay, two quick last questions. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you referred to the fact that you're Jewish. Did you grow up at the temple in Atlanta? I grew up at Temple Sinai. I was bat mitzvahed at Temple Sinai and, uh, and then we moved to the temple because I, I'm the youngest of four in my family. And at some point, I think that the schlep from our house to Temple Sinai for the remainder of one kid was uh, probably a little bit more than my parents wanted to do. And I had a lot of friends at the temple. So, and my brother yeah. is president of the temple right now. So yeah. that's where I belong again. I love that. Well, I've talked with Rabbi Berg so much and I know about the, the history of the temple, not only being a wonderful, wonderful place, but also from a public perspective, the temple has had its own experience with domestic terrorism mm -hmm. and domestic extremists in terms of the bombing there. And I have some sense, do you as a member there and your brother is the president of the temple, um, do you have some sense of this kind of value laden spiritual stability that takes you through tough times? Well, yes. I mean, I wouldn't want to speak for my brother, uh, brothers, but, you know, I, yes, I think so. And I think the bombing that you're referring to, I think back in the fifties, if anyone's seen Driving Miss Daisy, it's, uh, you know, it's mentioned briefly there as well, but they were Zoom bombed two weeks ago. Uh, when Rabbi when uh, Rabbi Berg was interviewing Raphael Warnock, and it was a it it shut down systems all over the United States because of a DNI attack, and you know so there are bombings in different ways. But at the end of the day, what happened was more people ended up seeing that event than fewer people because it was so outrageous that it had happened that it drew more people to hearing the words of Senator Warnock and Rabbi Byrne talking. And so I think that, again, there's a self-correcting mechanism that, that, we, that I like to think we've built into the checks and balances we have in democracy and the checks and balances we have in, in people's ability to, to hear things that otherwise would be blocked off to them. So it's, um, you know, you, you stay grounded where you can these days. So that's, yeah. uh, that's sort of my path. <clears throat> Your community does help in being grounded. So my last question, my friend. So I preached about you in my <laughs> New Year's sermon on Sunday because you and I had had this lovely exchange where I'd just offhandedly used the word transformational. And you had written back and said, oh, Ed, 
that's my word for the year. And I just was so taken by, and, and you talked about your family using, yeah. choosing this word, that it was family-based or communal-based, not just individual, and that it was a word, a concept, rather than a spelled out resolution. Can you talk just a little bit more about that in closing? Yeah, I, so I, it was funny because I was just pulling up on my phone. Every year, my family, we each choose a word for the year that you try to aspire to. And so I think when we started it, my word was patience. And like two days later, I was like, I need to change my word. I clearly am not going to be able to aspire to be impatient. That's just not going to happen. So it's been this ongoing joke. And so this year, my word was transformational. Uh, last year, it was balance. It was looking because I kept it. You know, My son's word is resilience. He's moved to Atlanta in the middle of all of this. Uh, two of my daughters, you know, have um, contentment, uh, perseverance, gratitude, you know, and so transformational for me is so descriptive of my life personally and, and professionally. And, you know, to back to the, our initial discussion, when I said I was working in Central and Eastern Europe, when I moved there in 1990, the transformation that I saw people go through was really important. And it was uh, educational for me to have a better understanding of how life changes affect people. Um, you know, fast forward now, we're in a very transformational period of time where people are realizing they don't have to spend two hours in traffic getting to and from work every day, and they can spend more time with their family. Uh, they can do things online, but at the same time, there's a lack of separation between home and work because home has become work. And so I think as we as Americans and globally look at what this pandemic has done and what this quarantine has done and what the closing of, of public spaces has done, it will transform us. What we do with that is a real question. And that's sort of why I want to spend this year thinking about transformational. Am I transforming myself back into the person I was in 2018 and 2019? Like I'm just waiting to get back to that? Or will this be a period of time that allows me to sort of take away. But yeah, we're humans. It's like squirrel, squirrel. Yeah, we're just going to jump <laughs> when we, you know, when something happens, we're going to say, oh, okay, we can do that now. And I think that, you know, memories are, you know, our memories are very elastic. And I think we will pop back to, oh, I need to be in the car. I need to be at work five days a week. I need, I don't know. So we'll see what this year brings. Oh, wonderful answer. Arundhati Roy has given me a, a kind of a mantra. She has written an essay called Pandemic as Portal. And I really am so with you on, on the transformation. I want this to be a portal to something new and better. I want this to be a portal into something that's much more interconnected and less divisive and polarizing. Well, Paige, you really have had an, a transformational impact on me. I thank you for your friendship. You've been so warm in accepting me into all of this. And um, I'll be there with you, whatever you need from me, from St. Luke's uh, in your leadership. Um, you can count on us. Thank you very much. And thank you. And thanks to you and Ann Kramer and Wesley and everybody who worked so hard to, to make sure these voices are heard. So thanks for your time today. Thank you very much for joining us. What an amazing conversation with, uh, with Paige. And uh, 
We hope that you'll stay tuned and join us for next Sunday. Bye-bye.